All right, hello everyone, and welcome to Congress Two Beers In, Episode Eight. I'm Mac Glassman, Senior Fellow at the Government Affairs Institute. I'm here with Mark Harkins. Hello, everybody. Laura Blessing. Hiya. And our special guest, CQ reporter Jennifer Shutt. Hey. And Jennifer has already won the uh, Congress Two Beers In award so far for the first two months of our existence, three months of our existence, because she brought the beer this time. If you want to get on Congress Two Beers In and you are a reporter or not a reporter, just promise to bring <laughs> us the beer and you will be on the show. So welcome, Jennifer. It's good to have you. Thanks for having Beautiful me. Beautiful blue dog, flying yes. dog, sorry. It's, it's flying. Jennifer dogs. brought us a six pack of flying dog it's blood flying orange dog. ale. We were promised a gingerbread stout. But we are not picky about free beer, and so we, we took the, the, the blood orange ale. Well, and, and we, are, we are now the Flying Dog Caucus. We're not yellow, we're not blue. We fly, kids, so don't try this at home. Here, here. Je- Jennifer has already promised to come back with more beer. We have already accepted. We have no idea um, what that means, but we're going to get into it. Uh, Jennifer was just telling us that uh, she was not at the Capitol through the night uh, for the shutdown last Friday, Thursday night into Friday. Uh, what were you doing, Jennifer? You're a Hill reporter, but you weren't on the Hill? So I was on the Hill throughout most of the day with my CQ and roll call colleagues, of course. But then one of the things that we sort of developed during the last shutdown is that you obviously need people to staff sort of all day. And so we sort of moved into what we refer to as shutdown formation, where we have a day team and a night team. Um, and so my colleague Kelly Madrick and I sort of rolled off the hill around 8.30, 9 p.m. Our colleagues Paul Krawczak and Ryan McCrimmon stayed for the overnight shift, and then Kelly and I set alarms for around 4 a.m. Um, and we woke up and logged back on, and we're checking in with our staff who were there, our colleagues who were there overnight. Um, and then we sort of watched the floor through the through the House vote, and then we logged off around 6 a.m., and I'm pretty sure both of us fell back asleep. <laughs> Sounds right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, uh, why don't you tell us what your beat is at CQ for the listeners who don't know? What do you cover? So I cover budget and appropriations. Oh, so pretty... nothing going on, really? Nah, it's no, been pretty I quiet, mean, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's fine. <laughs> no, uh, we've, we, we've had a few people complain that we talk too much about our budget and appropriations, but you know what? That's really all that's going on right now. Would, yeah. you, would you seem to agree with that? I mean, in addition to the, the DACA immigration border security debate, budget and appropriations, in my humble opinion, is always where the interesting stories are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think it's so much that it's always going on. That's the only thing going on. It's just that it's always going on. And given the dynamic of waiting for the must-pass deadlines, that it's always going to be at the bare minimum on the back burner. Even right, even right now, it's like, well, what's going on? Well, the Senate's submitting DACA, and if they're not doing that, they're doing nominations. And the House is doing just suspensions of whatever but looming in the background is march 23rd sure and, right? and so we're right back where we were and you're negotiating by crisis seems to be more and more institutionalized as we get on to you know number one cr turns into two crs turns into three turns into four and as well as the budget as a, as a vehicle to do other substantive policy issues like daca as you mentioned well, someone should recount what the deal was and the shakeout of the deal and where we stand. Mark, Jennifer, Jennifer, this seems like right in your wheelhouse. If not, I can try and do it. Yeah, so this was a massive spending deal, right? It increased discretionary spending in fiscal 2018, which began back on October 1st, and fiscal 2019, which will begin this October 1st, by about $296 billion, right? This year, that plus is up non-defense discretionary by $63 billion and defense discretionary by $80 billion. Next year, it'll plus up non-defense discretionary by $68 billion and defense Defense discretionary by 85 billion. There is also a debt limit suspension in that package that goes through March of 2019. There was 89 billion for disaster aid, which follows last year's massive hurricane season and wildfires in the West. 
And there was a lot of additional spending provisions in that package, as well as a handful of tax extenders. So it was a very large spending package. And of course, that sets us up and the appropriators up to sort of re-divvy up those new top lines for fiscal 2018 and start putting together the 12-bill omnibus, which they expect they're going to have before March 23rd. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is this is one of the first CRs we've had where we've had an incredible increase in spending included in it. Normally, a continuing resolution is just continue at the same or at the same as a little bit less. But that's what was fascinating to me is not only was this just a CR that kind of punted for another month, month and a half, but we actually put a lot more spending authority out there at least. Right? This raising of the caps doesn't mean we actually have to do it. And President Trump himself has said, hey, these are ceilings, not floors, right? And we'll see what what happens. But I think we all believe that Congress will actually spend up to those ceilings. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a huge deal for budget busting. But to me, this was like the end of this, the second phase of the 115th Congress. The first phase was the partisan phase where the Republicans try and do health care unsuccessfully and taxes successfully in a partisan way. And then you have the compromise phase where you're going to have to get a deal eventually on the BCA caps for spending and ultimately on the 18 uh, appropriations. But I assume now that that will come in short order once you have the caps in there. It's, you know, little issues. And then the third phase of the 115th will be the stalemate phase where sure. there'll be either a, do- the either a DACA, election deal, right, a DACA deal or not. And then some wrangling about what may or may not happen, which will be nothing. And then the FY19 appropriations will just be patched over and then we'll have the election. So, I mean, I see this as the, the second phase of the 115th Congress. Sure. And just for a little context as to, to Mark's legitimate surprise on all of this is is uh, in terms of the, the, the numbers being larger, you know, we typically have two-year uh, budget inc- budget cap increases ever since the 2011 uh, you know uh, sequestration uh, which is never you know which you know we keep passing um, uh, increases to those budget caps in that original agreement and typically every two years those budget caps are increased by about 30 billion ish dollars um, you know now those budget cap uh, budget caps are up by uh, about 161 for uh, 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 for 165 for defense for for um for, for um uh, you know um uh, non-defense discretionary um oh for defense discretionary and about 131 uh for um uh non-defense discretionary uh which is you know uh 161 um you know those numbers are significantly larger than 30 billion so um it, you know re- reflects a changed political reality and a changed willingness uh to, to play with these numbers um, though, you know, this the, another uh, added element to all of this is the, the, the tax bill that was recently passed and trying to make all those numbers add up um, or, frankly, not. But, you know. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, have you seen uh, like a difference in the way that members are approaching this over the last few years that all of a sudden these last caps that, that Laura was talking about, they were actually paid for. We can talk about the mirrors and gimmicks that they did, but these don't seem to be paid for in quite the same way. No. So the agreement with this new spending cap was to show offsets of about $100 billion, which means roughly $196 billion is not offset. And that's a significant 
change from what we saw with the last two budget agreements in 2013 and 2015, where they were, they were said to be fully offset, fully paid for, so that they would not add to the annual deficit or the cumulative national debt. And that is one of the reasons that we saw deficit hawks and conservative Republicans get so frustrated with this proposal, is that they really thought with a unified Republican government that we would see sort of something similar to the administration's fiscal 2018 request, where you probably saw $54 billion plus up for defense. Um, and they didn't expect to see level funding for non-defense discretionary. Everybody up there who's been around for a decent amount of time understands you're going to see NDD go up by something. But this this whole agreement for the two-year budget budget deal in general was a lot for those people to accept, especially from a unified Republican government where they thought there would be additional attention paid to deficits and debt and fiscal responsibility. Yeah, I thought I thought Ryan did pretty well here on the political side in that he didn't end up having to roll the House Republicans. Uh, they ended up getting a majority of them to support this, which I didn't... Like two-thirds. N- yeah, sure. I, didn't, I didn't expect. Which they got a ton of votes mark. in the House, and um, that was something that was in question, right? How many Democratic yeah. votes were they going to need? And, of course, needing all those Democratic votes or needing any Democratic votes gave away some of the leverage, and this looks like a pretty nice deal. DACA aside, this looks like a pretty nice deal for the Democrats. They get a lot of things they want out of it. But I thought, you know, as far as, you know, Ryan's control over the caucus, this seemed pretty good. The president may have been able to help on this. Uh, it seems like the Freedom Caucus of the far right has turned into sort of defense hawks in a way that they're going to be willing to support runaway spending to a certain degree, or at least not try to overthrow the speaker because of it. But uh, I thought Ryan made his way through this as best as he probably could have. That doesn't mean he's going to survive DACA unscathed, uh, or maybe in an existential sense. But uh, I was I thought this was going to pull him a little more taut than it did, and I thought I thought this pulled Pelosi pretty taut too. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something last week that. Uh, I was marveling out when they were going back and forth on whether to whip against this or not whip against this and what were they going to do on it. And that struck me as um, basically the evidence that the Democratic caucus in the House is just as much in tension with their leadership as the Republican caucus is. And, and how do you define whipping all of a sudden became something right. that came out because Pelosi supposedly announced that she was against it, but Hoyer sent out something that said, you know, we kind of like people to vote against it. And was that whipping against it? Oh, no, 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 we're not whipping against it. We're letting members do whatever they want. And ultimately, what they got about 70 Democrats to actually vote in favor of this package, which but most of them, if you actually go back and watch the tape, it's fascinating. It's a 15 minute vote. They normally keep these open for 17 minutes at 15 minutes and 15 seconds. They start bringing the gavel down and there were like 50 Democrats who hadn't voted yet. And so it didn't actually have a majority vote of 216, but it had a majority vote of those having voted. Then all of a sudden you had to watch all these members walk down and sign their little green cards because they actually turned off the machines where they could put in their cards. And it got to be playing a little bit of hardball at the end. It seemed like the Democrats saying, well, we're going to sit back because we know that we have the balance of power. And then all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute, if we don't vote at all, they still have a majority. And then we'll be saying is not voting. It was really fun to watch if you're into that kind of geekiness. And that's who I am. Sorry. Well, it's it's, uh, it's it's really kind of interesting to look at kind of the short-term messaging strategy on each of these different things, which, you know, I'm convinced that even a more politically adept audience doesn't always pay attention to or remember. But, you know, Ryan certainly has a, I, th- I think your point was uh, very well taken, Matt, that, uh, you know, Ryan has a very difficult job managing different factions, and he managed to come out uh, better than he certainly could have. Uh, immigration will be a really big question mark, especially since he's been recently saying, I, I believe this morning, that you know he really wants to get this done in March, um, which 
you know, he's already gotten the unsurprising warning from, from Meadows on this. Um, and, you know, given the last, the last time that we saw this movie, um, uh, uh, one would not assume that uh, conditions have improved since 2014 when the Senate passed an immigration bill um, and the House didn't bring one up because uh, it failed the, ha the so-called Hatch Rule. Uh, that is to say that a, uh, you don't bring up legislation uh, unless a majority of the majority party yeah. approves of it. And you can think whatever you want about the Hatch Rule. But Hastert, Hastert. 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 Oh, I'm sorry. 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 Congress Close. two beers in. Bro. Yeah, yeah, bro in. Brought to you by Flying Dog Ale. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and I was offering to bring bourbon, so clearly all of my H words are blurred. By the way, can together. you imagine if, if if Hatch was the Speaker of the House? Oh wow! Oh gosh, that's, that's, <laughs> what a world that's, that would be! That's, huh? that's, a, that's a fun mental experiment. <laughs> so. So, Jennifer, I mean, when we were going through this whole deal, I mean, there obviously there's some interesting other dynamics going on right now. You have the chairman of the Appropriations Committee announcing he's not going to run for re-election. To some of us, that was unexpected. The House, be, Appropriations House Appropriations Committee. Thank you. That's <laughs> my second beer coming in. in. <laughs> um, and but right. there are there there are at least three and if not four announced people who are coming. Five announced. I'm getting the hand signals. Um, how did how did they play into what was going on with all this, or did they, or did they kind of lay back? Yeah, I think there's always a lot of behind the scenes, off the record sort of things that are going on with the appropriations process, right? We expect these 12 bills to be written to the new higher spending level, sort of all behind closed doors with staff and lawmaker input, and of course input from leadership. Um, but of course, House Appropriations Chairman Ronnie Freelandhuisen's retirement is going to play into the fiscal 2018 and fiscal 2019 process in that his announcement has essentially made him a lame duck chairman for the lack of any other term. And so we've seen uh, Kay Granger, Republican of Texas, the defense subcommittee chairwoman, she's thrown her hat in the ring. She's one of the leading contenders right now. She obviously controls the largest of the 12 appropriations bills in the House. Um, Labor HHS Education Subcommittee Chairman Tom Cole has thrown his hat in the ring. Financial Services Subcommittee Chairman Tom Graves has thrown his hat in the ring. Um, Energy Water Subcommittee Chairman Simpson. And then Agriculture Subcommittee Chairman Adderholt. They've all thrown their hats in the ring. So we have a very intense competition going right now for who gets a decent allocation of this additional money going on. And that is going to be an interesting thing to watch in the coming weeks is sort of how these these five people form up their bills and how they sort of get along or don't get along in the remaining fiscal 2018 process and then the, the fiscal 2019 process, which we're going to see once this omnibus sort of gets itself onto the House floor. Yeah. So there's a lot of political dynamics going on in the House right now. Yeah. What's going on there? The Jennifer is coming to is that uh, the extra money that is now under the new BCA caps uh, needs to be divided up among the 12 appropriations committees. Typically, this is done by the budget resolution where they get a 302, what's called a 302A allocation, which is the total money that'll be for discretionary. And then the chair of House Approps divides that among the subcommittees in a 302B allocation. We have extra money now because the caps were raised more than uh, they were writing the bills to originally. So that extra money needs to be divided up among the subcommittees. Right. I mean, defense has a set number yes. and then the other 11 defense, have to yeah. deal with the other 60 yeah. some odd billion dollars and or, or not if they decide to listen to President Trump on yes. this. Um, they will not listen to President Trump. <laughs> They're going to spend the money. Yeah. I mean, 
I do not expect that they will spend any less than what they got in the caps. I was speaking with uh, Senator Roy Blunt this week. Um, he is on the Senate side. He's the senior appropriator and chair of Labor HHS Education over there. And he was saying that I said I was asking him, you know, about the details of this White House suggestion that they don't spend all of the NDD increase. And he was he sort of said, yeah, we're appropriators. We're going to spend everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, the, we're the article one. Right. I, I, yes. <laughs> Like, this is our constitutional authority. We will decide. As a a former appropriator, I will tell the story is that uh, I worked with a number of clerks who had been there before the Budget Act. And before the Budget Act, the Appropriations Committee was filled with uh, Southern Democrat conservatives. And they really felt a strong charge to hold down spending. It was something they believed in, and it was something that they saw as their responsibility. They were in charge of uh, appropriations. And then the budget cap came in, or the budget... The Budget Act came in in 1974 and set a top line for them. And all of a sudden, it became a fight over who got that piece of the pie because the top line, the control on the amount they could spend was already done. And then it was just a food fight, and they were going to spend every nickel (laughs) underneath that Budget Act. Uh, And so the days of the Appropriations Committee being a break on spending – uh, are, are long gone, and by long gone, I mean generation gone now. Yeah, when you change the rules of the game, you change the incentives, so you yeah, no longer yeah, have for sure. Wilbur Mills of the guns, not, right. you know, right. guns or butter, right. you must choose. Jamie Witten ain't walking through that door anytime soon. Mm, no, but some of his so, staff are still around. Yeah. Um, no, now we're on the guns and butter, and can, you, can we put gu- butter on the guns? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then along with this, I mean, another old practice that is starting to kind of be talked about in the background. And does this seem to be do any of these five seem to have a position on the concept of earmarks? Yeah, they're all appropriators. So in general, <laughs> yeah. there you That's go. That's how that works. Congress two peers in. They're appropriators. Um, and of course, there's a lot of discussion going on about how earmarks or congressionally directed spending um, will or could return to Congress. Uh, it's an interesting prospect. The Senate is mostly staying very far away from this right now. They don't want any part of this House debate. The House, of course, they want a bipartisan way of doing this, which is a little bit complicated right now because the earmark ban that former Speaker John Boehner put in place um, in January of 2011 is written in the House GOP rules, not the official House rules. And so if they are to actually remove this provision, well, in the majority of the House, they have to do it themselves, right? Like, Democrats can't come into the House GOP conference and, like, cast a bipartisan vote on this. Like, they have to do it as part of their family discussion. No pitchforks? No anything coming in? No. I mean, we could see a pitchfork or two. I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) Um, But it's, you know, it's a really fascinating debate right now because it is, of course, this Article 1 authority and that a lot of the appropriators feel that they have ceded some of that to the executive branch by not able to sort of go through the appropriations bills line by line and say, we want X amount of dollars going here, Y amount of dollars going here. So in some of these budget areas and these budget functions, that is sort of left up to the department or agency, and they are not very happy about that. So that's going to be a very interesting thing going forward this year. And of course, because it is written in the House GOP rules, not the official House rules, if Democrats regain control of the House following the 2018 midterms, the the issue of the debate within the House GOP conference essentially becomes moot, and we go back to pre, yep. 
pre-January 2011 rules for earmarks in the House, which would be really interesting well, to see. Well, the debate moves to the Democratic caucus. Right. But the expectation would be is they're not going to try right, to block Right, and it would take an affirmative action by the Democrats to continue the ban, which, of course, it kind of does among the Republicans now. Their rules aren't, uh, you know, are not enforceable on the floor. No one can raise a point of order about earmarks. It's just the party themselves enforcing it upon themselves. So they are free to ignore that if and when they want to. Um you know, I think, you know, it cuts to kind of, as Jennifer said, the Article 1 issue, it cuts to the kind of the basic misunderstanding about earmarks is that the vast majority of earmarks were carve-outs within money already being appropriated, not additional money being piled on top. So they may have been inefficient, if that's your concern, but they weren't spending extra money in many cases. Um, that said, I was there in FY10 when they were at their absolute nightmarish peak, uh, and they were really distorting the appropriations process because no one cared what was in the bills except their earmarks. And so mm-hmm. I can kind of see... Both sides of it. If I had my brothers, I'd bring them back, though. Oh, I certainly would as well. You know, they, they make negotiating so much easier when you actually have something to offer people mm-hmm. instead of, you know, you want more carrots than sticks. And, uh, you know, it's hard to, to bolster agreement now. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do think it's it's interesting talking about, like, you know, if the discussion is within the Republican conference instead of, uh, you know, for the rules for the whole House, you know, that, that changes the nature of that discussion. Um, I, I, I find it unlikely that... You know the, the you know the House Republicans would, would want to bring this back. Um, I could see the the, the Democrats um, suggesting something similar to their 2007 you know reporting requirements or something to uh, you know make this uh, add kind of good government elements to this. Uh, to be sure, uh, earmarks certainly increased uh, in staggering numbers um, up right up until the point where they were banned. Um, uh, so that sort of reform uh, might. Uh, might look uh, likely. Um, it also would be some one of those win-wins where you look like you're being the good government party, but uh, everyone actually wants to be able to claim credit uh, for uh, the earmark that they're offering. You know, this is kind of standard uh, for our political science scientists out there. You know, David Mayhew and his credit claiming. Um, yep. You know, this is that's Absolutely. that sort of uh, you know earmark uh, discussion in a in a you know. So one statement and then one in one prediction. So the statement is, um, I think Democrats absolutely will want to bring this back if they get a chance because the, 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 the biggest thing that's helpful here is the fact that we've actually increased the caps. And so all of a sudden you have additional money. And so it's much easier to earmark against additional money. Even as Matt says, it doesn't add additional spending, but the, the agencies already have a sense of what they're going to get, and th- there's extra money out there, and that tended to be where earmarking kind of got going. The second thing would be is we're not going to finish a 2019 process before the election, right? That's pretty dead set on. Not so if the Democrats, I would say, regardless of the Democrats or the Republicans take over, I think earmarking comes back in the 2019 process because of the fact that we've blown the caps up and we will have gotten past the election. I think um, earmarking comes back with Democrats only. <laughs> I can see it. Um, let's turn our attention to DACA and immigration. I'm Absolutely. reminded of a, I think about Ryan, we were talking about before, I'm reminded of a story from Showdown of Gucci Gulch, that wonderful book about tax reform in 86. And Senator Packwood is getting drunk at Irish Times, the bar right, at, right outside of Union Station across from the Senate. He's getting drunk with his chief of staff because he has heard that Rostenkowski has managed to move the tax bill out of the House. 
uh, and it's coming over to the Senate, and now he is going to have to deal with it as finance chair, and uh, this is going to ruin any hope he has to be president. This is before he ruins himself, any hope he has to be president. <laughs> but uh, this is going to ruin him for president. And all I can think of is Ryan in these situations, who I think very much still wants to be president. I don't know if that's a real possibility or not. But I can see Ryan sitting in his office going, man, I hope they sink this immigration in the Senate right now and I don't have to deal with it. I don't know if they're going to sink it in the Senate. I don't know if they do sink it. That means he doesn't have to deal with it. But I certainly feel like Ryan doesn't want to deal with immigration right now. I think that's absolutely right. That's right. And you can, there's a there's a bunch of great Twitter storm stuff out there from James Walner um, about what the Senate is doing to kind of uh, twist its own processes yeah. to say that it's open but not really being open. If you don't follow James on Twitter, you should because there's some really great process stuff about how this isn't necessarily open in the sense that you would think it's open. It's open as long as you say the leadership is to determine what you get to do is open. Yes. Right. They do have amendments now in the Senate, though. Is that correct, Jennifer? <laughs> I, there are amendments pending, I would say. There are amendments. There are, there are, there are, and that was a, that's a high hurdle in the Senate because, like, <laughs> like, uh, like Mark said, they have McConnell was blocking all amendments until he could get a UC agreement, and no one was willing to fight on the floor about it. And so they did not have any amendments pending for quite a while, but now there are amendments pending. Grassley is a substitute pending. And the Senate cloakroom put out actually a yes, chart yes, an to amendment try tree. to show you how the amendments I was like dancing in this room. Went. I was jumping around. There's no, <laughs> the Senate cloakroom was publishing the amendment tree. I can't, it's like I'm running around. I cannot believe the amendment trees on Twitter. So now you understand the depth of our geekiness because that was before the beer. Uh, we were, yeah, so we were occupied. Jennifer, do you have any updates on Doc? Any late breaking updates on what's going on in the Senate? I do not at this point in time. <laughs> no, no you don't want to break news right here? <laughs> don't put the budget person on the spot no, I, I mean, authorize I, it. I mean, I don't, I, I feel like everyone kind of knows that there's a deal to be cut on DACA, which is some sort of accommodation for the so-called dreamers at some level on some conditions in exchange for some level of border funding. Sure. And it could be something like the most minimal accommodation to dreamers with a little bit of border wall funding to a full-scale kind of path to citizenship in a reasonable amount of time for 1.8 million people in exchange for $25 billion in, in wall funding. And that a deal between those two spots is there to be had. The shape, the actual deal, it doesn't seem to be an unknown. It's whether they can get there in both chambers. Uh, with, with the voters need to take the votes that they need to take to get there. And I, I honestly don't know what's going to happen. I feel like McConnell's trying to avoid a deal and uh, trying to find out who he can blame sure. or trying to place the blame properly. And I did an open process and look, no one could do it. No one could get 60 votes in the Senate. Sure. But I don't know. I mean, I, I could see this going in lots of directions. No, I, I, I think you're right. And I, I, I do really appreciate your, your larger framing with the Gucci gel- Gulf yes. uh, reference. Congress two bears in the historical literature section. <laughs> yes, <laughs> especially taxless historical li- literature. Um, I, I need those lobbyists to start wearing Gucci shoes again. I used to take, when I taught Gucci Gulch to my Congress class at Cath. Like I used to take them over to Irish Times and we used to sit in a booth and pretend we were Packwood getting drunk That's with our chief of staff and oh, commiserating man. about having to deal with this bill. Can I take your class, you, man? You should take it. It's a, it's a wonderful can Congress I, class. I, I want to take the, the drinking part of it. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, can we but, just um, go drink and talk about Congress? Matt brought that to GAI. We are, so. we, are, we are working on getting a mobile studio. We're having... Yes. We're working on getting... Josh Huter is so enamored with the idea of being able to put our studio, Josh connect to an tap. iPad, and take it to the hill, but yeah. he he doesn't know the half of it because I'm ready to take it to Irish Times. <laughs> nice. And we can live out <laughs> Senator Packwood's uh, disgruntlement in the spring of 1986. But, no, I, I mean, I, I think you have a very interesting point here. I mean, as, as well as like this idea that there was a deal to be had between 
uh, different negotiating positions. It's just kind of a matter of meeting in the middle and like hopefully legislating to that point. But, you know, there are a lot of different issues where, you know, once you spell out the different policy proposals and you kind of meet in the middle, you say, you know, in theory, it should we should be capable of finding a compromise that kind of the known people in Congress with their known positions should be able to agree on, you know, and where X number of percent of the American public agrees on that issue. And then in issue after issue, it's, you know, especially things like immigration, we, we seem to be unable to find that. And it seems like there, on different issues, there is a, you know, vocal minority that is opposed to uh, different things. I mean, this uh-huh. kind of yes. traditional, I like Downsian, I'm sorry, this is literature review <laughs> continued. Um, I Red alert, that, Downsian mentioned. Yes. <laughs> that, you know, public opinion is, is a one bell curve where we can meet in the middle and get things done, I yeah. think is increasingly outdated. I think both sides are playing to their base. Um, but, you know, the, the, uh, I, the, the most politically active, uh, you know, voting parts of the Republican conference or of, of the Republican Party and Republican voters um, don't seem to want, uh, you know, any sort of compromise. Um, and that we've seen hurt different politicians like Marco Rubio, whose initial, you know, support mm-hmm. in 2014 yep. um, was very heartily rebuffed. Uh, by the most energized uh, voters in his state, for example, just I, it's probably one of the better examples that you can find. Um, you know, I, I I think that savvy politicians and Mitch McConnell is a savvy politician want to look like they're trying, sure. um, but aren't going to succeed with this. Um, so normally to get major issues through, you have to have some sort of leadership that wants to push it through. Right. And the biggest exactly. problem Especially at the moment is that it's actually out of Congress, I think. You have a White House, you have a president who's ostensibly the head of the Republican Party, yep. um, who says that he wants a deal and he wants to have a, a solution, and then he offers up a plan and says this is the compromise plan, when it actually is a post that's kind of pretty far to one side. Right. And I think that has made this more difficult because Ryan has come back and said, hey, I'm willing to consider any immigration bill on the floor that the president will sign into law. Yeah. Right. Um, and that has made this a much more difficult process. I mean, well, I, I also think the Democrats are being strategic about this too because, you know, uh, relatively early on a couple of weeks ago, they said, hey, we're willing to fund the wall. And, you know, that's a, you know, that that is an interesting position. Uh, let's have Jennifer on this. Yeah, so just one point of clarification from everything we understand about what Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer offered that was authorizing, not appropriating for the wall. So very, a very good big distinction. distinction. Very good distinction. I, I mean, I did see, I, I think I saw a quote from Gutierrez. Yeah. I think I saw quotes from Gutierrez, though, saying that he, he's willing to give up a significant amount of wall funding to get the Dreamers a path to citizenship. So, I mean, I I think the bigger piece here is that there's a floor majority in both chambers for action on DACA, um, no doubt. And there may, you know, I don't know if there's 60 in the Senate for action, but certainly in the House, there's a floor majority for this. There's all the basically all the Democrats and a significant number of Republicans who'd vote for this. Um, but, you know, this is unusual in Congress. You know, the partisan partisan parties control the floor and the agenda setters are the partisan leaders. And so the policy shifts towards that party. And it's not unusual for things that have floor majorities to be kept off the floor uh, by the agenda setting power of these leaders. Um, you mean the Hastert rule? Yeah. Well, not not even the Hastert rule, but just... <laughs> not Hatch. Anyway, not, not the Hatch rule. But not even that. I mean, I you know, you have 
you know, plenty of things that leaders just choose their agendas wisely or pull stuff when floor majorities look like they're going to have say. I mean, this is no different than when the Democrats were pushing the D.C. Voting Rights you know, Act and it looked like the motion recommit from the Republicans was going to be gun rights in D.C. And they had to choose, you know, and they didn't want because gun rights has a floor majority in the House a lot of the time and they didn't want it. So they pulled the bill. And so it's not unusual for them to block this stuff. It's just this is extremely high profile issue that's happening on. One thing I want to ask Jennifer is that if there's a DACA deal, do you see it being tied to the omnibus or do you see it being standalone? That's a really complicated question. That's one of the things that we've been trying to get sort of a clear answer on from leadership in Congress because, of course, if you want money actually funding border security and the border wall, you need it to be in an appropriations package. And so we're trying to figure out right now whether or not if this, you know, $18 billion for the wall, $25 billion for border security number is going to be authorizing or appropriating, which is a huge distinction and one that everyone sort of got tripped up on last time around. So we are trying to really hone in on that. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is that if you're going to do 20 plus billion, maybe over two years, so maybe divide that in half, 10 to 12 billion, is that going to come out of the new non-defense caps? So when mm-hmm. you're looking at it from a democratic perspective, have the caps actually not been increased as much as you thought they were, because you're gonna to have to spend a significant percentage of that cap on the president's wall. And uh, that's another issue that comes into play here. Have we just negotiated for caps that now we're going to spend down on a priority that's not really our priority, the non-defense side? That's not to say that the non-defense side is the Democratic side, but traditionally that's how it's thought of in some ways, is that the Republicans are going to get military funding and the Democrats are going to get kind of the non-defense discretionary side. No, absolutely. I think that's a very interesting question. Um, Yeah, I mean, and also... Yeah, are we going to see an effort to, to, to spin the wall's infrastructure? Yeah, so. <laughs> I mean, I think it's totally plausible. I mean, I, yeah. I think the deal has always been, you know, some amount of money that doesn't say wall in the actual bill. And so Democrats can claim it's border security and that the right. president can claim it's a wall and then everyone can kind of go message. That seems like the kind of way Congress would do this deal. I, You know, this is the one issue, it's, I think. It's not beautiful or no, tremendous to you? The, the <laughs> best wall. Yeah. The best wall. Uh, the, the best $20 billion. I, you know, this is one issue where the president seems to have uh, personal interest in it in a way he hasn't for other issues. Well, um, and certainly a specificity he, behind a policy program that's absolutely. allowing him to actually advance something right. as opposed to saying get, get something done. Right. I mean, I do think that a lot of the division in the House Republicans right now, and in, in general in the Republican Party, is partially due to the fact that the president hasn't been able to coordinate the sure. way a typical president would be. A lot of first-year presidents have trouble. Clinton certainly did. This isn't necessarily Trump-specific. But the president has been less of a coordinating device, and the White House has been less of a coordinating machine uh, for the Republican Party than you would normally have. And that obviously puts Ryan in a terrible position, right? Not being the leader of the party, but being the leader of the policy party. It's a very unusual spot for a a modern speaker who has the president of the same party. But uh, this may be an issue where the president can throw his weight around and is interested in throwing his weight around, Uh, although I still don't know what his position on DACA is. I haven't figured it out yet. I've been trying, but it's not, it's impossible (laughs) to pin down exactly what he wants to get. But it doesn't seem to be uh, the Freedom Caucus position, it doesn't seem to be the Democratic position. It's something amorphously circling around in between those two. Sure, and and to be sure, Article 1, folks such as ourselves and the, 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 the people that we talk the most about um, are often unwilling to, to emphasize the extent to which major legislation emerges from the executive branch. And you have a presidential administration uh, that... Uh, seems to be willing to yield more of that deliberative process, far more of that deliberative process, and you know, deal uh, details that are, you know, uh, that they feel most invested in to Congress itself. And so you see a, a pretty unusual dynamic uh, where members of Congress who, uh, you know, like to tout their own deliberative prowess, 
um, are, are a little bit taken aback at this kind of new situation and things are even more in flux uh, than they normally are. Well, we've hit the 35-minute mark of Congress two beers in, and everyone knows that 37 minutes, no one's ever listened to a podcast no. longer than that, not even, even close. Even me. That's where you bury the like, state I'm secrets the is the 38 minute of the podcast. So this is the chance everyone to go around uh, for one final quip if you have it. Uh, I can go first if you guys aren't ready. And uh, I would say one thing to keep in mind as you watch this immigration debate is how much uh, the 2018 election influences even just the procedural moves people are making. Uh, uh, Majority Leader McConnell clearly... Uh, tried to hold an amendment vote on a sanctuary cities amendment uh, to put the Democrats on the spot and force them to vote on it, uh, clearly with an idea of using that amendment as a way to put people on record uh, and then to show it off this summer and fall in, in preparation for the elections. And so it's important to remember that uh, the electoral environment doesn't just affect kind of what policies are chosen to put on the floor or how people vote on final passage, but even how amendment process is structured in the Senate. You're never going to escape that. And I think the immigration bill is already showing signs of succumbing to that uh, where otherwise might not. Laura? No, I think that's a very interesting point. And I, I do think that there are the opportunities to uh, put off uh, any sort of significant decisions on immigration. And here's something where we bring in additional branches, you know, recent uh, court decisions um, uh, being particularly relevant here as well. I mean, I think there's also kind of a question of defining the Republican Party going forward and the importance of immigration to that self-definition. Um, uh, particularly if that uh, involves not making legislation is kind of an interesting way of thinking about party building and party self-definition. Jennifer, you got a parting shot for us? Yeah, I think that's going to be a really fascinating year for politics and policy intermingling, and I would stay tuned, especially for the reallocation of the 302Bs. I think that's going to be very telling. I think you should all continue to read Jennifer Schott's yes. materials. <laughs> I think so, too. CQ Roll Call. Our wonderful reporter, thank you to our guest today, Jennifer Schott. Thank you to Mark and Laura for being here. Thank you to Flying Dog Ale, brought to us by CQ Roll Call. Uh, and we should get the beer companies to just give us Yeah, stuff. we should probably yeah. do that. Yeah, and uh, we'll see you next time on Congress Two Beers In. Thanks. Thanks.